Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse number 4. Galatians 4 and verse number 4. Before we look at the verse, I want to show you a picture. This is a painting of my grandfather's, my great-grandfather's farm. And I've seen the farm. It's no longer there. It's all bulldozed over now. There's nothing but a flat field there now. Um, and I can never, I, I never remember meeting my great-grandfather. I vaguely remember my great-grandmother. This is on my father's side. Uh, I remember one Christmas we were there in their home, and I remember sitting in the lounge of that home, but that's all I remember that house. It was years ago. All I know about them now is history. It's all history. And anything I want to know about my grandparents, uh, my great-grandparents, I have to ask my father. He can fill me in on some details. He's told me some things about it. And even when I painted the picture, I asked him lots of questions about the farm and, you know, what color was this and what color was that because I painted it from a black and white picture and, and I got his ideas off of it. But I bring this to just say that history is something that's very important. And we can learn a lot from history. And as we think about the Incarnation, tonight I want to look at the Incarnation from a historical point of view. I want us to see the Incarnation from history. What does history talk about, about the Incarnation? And just look at it from that, that point of view. Here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, is the verse we're going to start with here tonight. It's kind of a foundation. Galatians 4, 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So notice there he says that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. So when God said the time was right, God sent forth his son, and his son Jesus Christ became a man. He was made of a woman, born to Mary, and was made under the law. That means he was, he was born during the time when the law was... Um, uh, the dispensation that was over the earth at that time, and it, he became a man that he might be able to die to pay for the debt of our sin. Now, as we think about that tonight, as we look at the incarnation from an historical point of view, I want us to examine three sources of historical evidence that ought to help us defend the incarnation. Three sources of evidence. And the first one is I thought about this, the scriptural evidences. You know, as I thought about that, you know, there's a lot of people that we would talk to and say, well, yeah, that's just from the Bible, and you can't really believe the Bible. So I thought, really, what we need to do is we need to look, first of all, at evidences of uh, credibility of the Bible. And uh, for those of you who were with us a few years ago, and we went through our doctrine class, we talked about 11 different evidences external evidences that we can believe the Bible and trust the Bible. And I want to go over those and refresh our minds with those. The first one is this, the, weak, the continuity of the Bible. By continuity, that refers to the fact that it's, it's unbroken and consistent existence over time is evidence that it is a genuine book. You stop and think about that. The Bible has been around for thousands of years, and it is still here, and it is still a prevalent book, and it is still active, and it is still helping people, and it's still ministering to people. Now, as we think about this, the collection of the book, there's 66 books within this one volume. 66 books. And those 66 books were written by approximately 40 different human authors. 40 authors. Some of them were kings, Others were peasants, philosophers, fishermen, physicians, statesmen, scholars, poets, and even plowmen wrote this book. 
And God used them and blended it all together. They came from various backgrounds and even various countries. And yet all of these 66 books that were written in a period of about 1,600 years, they all form a harmony, harmony that gives us our Bible that is consistent with each other. You know, if you try to do that in any other realm, if you try to take writings from 1,600 years written by 40 different people and try to make them all fit together, you'd never be able to do it. And that is another one of the major proofs that the Bible is unique. The Bible is a, a, a God-sent book to us. The second one is the amazing revelations of the Bible are evidence. Schaefer, in his uh, writings, makes this comment. He relates the Bible, first of all, to a telescope. As, he says, as a telescope, it looks in the ages past with that telescope and of the Bible, and then it looks to the ages of the future in the telescope. So it is like a telescope that is seen far away in both the eight in the aged past and in the, uh, in the far distant future. But he says it's also like a microscope that looks at the minute details of God's plan. And he gives us all the minute details of exactly what God's going to do. And we talked a little bit about some of those minute details this morning as we looked at the incarnation from eternity standpoint as God intricately planned it all. And so it's like a microscope. He said it's like a stereoscope that brings all these things into right relationship with each other without contradiction. And so the Bible is an amazing book. It is an amazing book of revelations. But also, number three, the Bible is the, the publication of the Bible surpasses all other books. There is no other book that has ever been written that has been published so many times. The Bible is still the number one bestseller in the world. And it has been for years. And that is an amazing statement about this book that can't be said about any other book. Number four, the influence of the Bible is supernatural. The Bible has transformed and sanctified millions of lives. You know, think of John 17, 17. Jesus prayed that night before his crucifixion. And he prayed and he said, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so the word of God is what sanctifies and cleanses us. Number five is the uh, superhuman subjects of the Bible show that it is God's word. It deals with the unknown and the unknowable. It speaks with authority of things in heaven and things on earth, of creation and the flood, of the seen and the unseen, of God, of angels, of men, of time, of eternity, of life, of death, of sin, of salvation, of hell, and of heaven. And apart from the message of this book, there is no knowledge of these eternal issues in the entire world. That's where we get all of our information about all of those things is right here. Where else would we find out about creation? Or you can look at evolution. All they're doing is guessing. But the Bible gives us God's exact details of what he took, what took place. And so the Bible is a superhuman book. But number six is the fulfilled prophecies have all been accurate. You look at the prophecies of the scripture and some of them aren't fulfilled yet, but all of the prophecies that God said would happen, they are accurate and they were fulfilled accurately. And it, that is an amazing truth when you see that. 
of exactly how God put it all together. Remember one example of this. Jeremiah preached for years. You need to get right with God. If you don't get right with God, you're going to go into captivity. You're going to go to Babylon. And you're going to be there for 70 years. And that's exactly what happened. They went to Babylon, and 70 years later, God, God even said hundreds of years before, 100 years before that, to Isaiah and Jeremiah, that Cyrus was the name of the man who would then be born that would set them free. That is amazing. And exactly what happened. Cyrus the king of Persia then decided to let them go free, and they could go back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple Amazing things that God did there. And so, the fulfillment of prophecies. Number seven is the testimony of archaeology. In, uh, includes such things as inscriptions on rocks, on temple walls, and statutes, and, and uh, pavement slabs, and clay tablets, and papyrus rolls, and coins, and seals, and pottery, and all kinds of objects that have been dug up uh, from the old burial sites and cities that all point to the things of the Bible, and they all talk about the things of the Bible. And they verify the things in the Bible. And all of this is, again, proof. The Bible is no mystical book. It is not some book of, written by a bunch of men that didn't know anything. It is God's book. And it is a wonderful book. The archaeology points it out. Geology also, number eight. Geology testifies that the Bible is God's word. Geology supports the global flood that verifies the accuracy of the Bible. We find the sea fossils above the sea level that doesn't make any sense to the human mind, how could sea fossils be up on top of some of the highest mountains in the world? But it makes perfectly good sense if you understand the flood. Because God pushed those mountains up after the flood was over. And the sea fossils went with them. And so there's so many things here. And the rapid deposits of the strata layers and all the details and the plants and, you know, the berry, the coal and oil alone just scream out that God is right and the Bible is true and the flood took place because there's no way possible that evolution could produce piles and piles of of debris that would squish down and make the coal and the oil. And even as you ponder that, that you think about the earth before the flood, it must have been an amazing place to see because most of the earth was covered with vegetation and there was animals galore. There was Billions of animals, because those animals are what form the oil deposit we have. So much oil, we've been using it for years, and they haven't even begun to touch it. There's lots of oil in the ground, and it all came from the squeezed out remains of the animal world during the flood. It didn't happen through evolution. There's no way evolution could figure out a way of squashing all that animal um, meat down to make all that oil. There's no way possible, but... It happened during the flood. And so the Bible geology uh, supports the Bible. Then number nine, the literature of the Bible is also supreme. It, It satisfies the simple minds and it challenges the brilliant minds. You need to think about that. There are some people in our world that are just absolute geniuses, brilliant minded people. And I listen to some of them talk and I think, you know, he's so far beyond me that he leaves me with the little kids and, you know, Preschool. Um, and yet, the Bible can meet our needs as simple people, but it can also be a challenge to those that are brilliant. Because the Bible is an amazing book. And no matter how much you study it, you'll never master the resource of it. There's always something more to learn. Because it is God's book. Number ten. 
the presentation of unprejudiced facts is evidence that the Bible is God's word. If I was writing a book, I would not write some of the things that are in the Bible. I would not tell everybody about all my bad deeds. You know, you read biographies. How many autobiographies do you read and they tell you all the bad stuff they did in their life? No way. They kind of forget that part of it and go on to the hero stuff. But the Bible includes records of sin and weakness of the best of men and the doom of all who, who rely on their own virtues instead of relying on God. And it tells us of the good and the bad of all these kind of things. And it tells you, you read those stories, and sometimes you read the stories of the Old Testament and think, oh, I wish just once I could read the story and that they would did it the right way. You know, they're going through the wilderness and you think, oh, why can't they just go through the wilderness without... Rejecting the promised land and without saying, no, we don't want to go into the promised land. Or why can, why, you know, all these different things where they made mistakes and we see ourselves in a lot of those mistakes. But God shows us that to help us to see it is a phenomenal book. It is written from a, a, a divine perspective. And then one last one, and that is that Jesus Christ, the super, uh, sorry, the supreme character of the Bible is more than mortal man could invent. You think about all the details of what Christ is and who he, what he did and how he did it, that it's beyond what a man would come up with. It is God's divine plan, as we talked about this morning. So the Bible is true and the Bible is accurate and we don't have to be afraid that somehow the Bible might be wrong and maybe somebody else is right. We can depend upon the Word of God. Now with that settled in our hearts, the statements of Scripture regarding the Incarnation take on a, a positive, strong effect in our lives. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, the one we just started with here, it says again, it says, And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman. God sent His Son made of a woman. The Incarnation, the Son of God, came to this earth and became a man Born of a woman. We find in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, another great verse about the incarnation. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. He was made visible in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached on to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. It describes the life of Christ while he was on this earth. All in one verse. And it starts out and calls him God manifest in the flesh. That is an amazing verse. And it just is a great incarnation verse for us to focus our thoughts on. Then John chapter 1 verse 14, a verse I read this morning, says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, speaking of Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Matthew one twenty three again, we read it this morning, but behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. You know, the cults don't like these kind of verses. They have to twist and squirm to try to get around some of these things when they don't want to think that Jesus is God. But it, Jesus is God with us. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 3. For what is the, uh, what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He didn't become a sinner, but he came, he took on a body just like mine and just like yours. 
of sinful flesh. He took on that body. Then one last one here, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Christ took on a body that he might become our Savior. And so there's these statements of Scripture that help us to understand the, the historical aspect of the Incarnation. But there's also testimonial evidence. Not just, not just the scriptural evidence, but testimonial evidence. And again, we, we draw from Jesus' own personal testimony. What did Jesus say about his own incarnation? John chapter 6 and verse 38. Jesus said, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. He said, I came down from heaven. John 8 verse 42. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but He sent me. Very clear. Jesus also said in John 10.36, I say unto Him, Whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. They were accusing Jesus of blasphemy because he said he was the Son of God. See, Jesus was defending his incarnation. And there's probably a lot of examples of others in the Bible that that defended or, or proclaimed his incarnation. But just a couple to get our thoughts going. One was the old man Simeon. Remember when Jesus was born and they took him to the temple uh, to, for his dedication in the temple. And as they got there, the old man Simeon was there. And the scriptures say in Luke chapter 2 and verse 26, And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when he saw that little baby in their arms... He proclaimed that as the one he'd been looking for. The Messiah had arrived. And so he was a personal testimony of that. And then there was Peter. Peter, the outspoken Peter. And Jesus asked the disciples, Whom do men say that I am? And what did Peter say? Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And so he testified of the who Christ Jesus really was. So here we have the, the testimony, first of all, of Scripture, then the testimony, uh, the evidence, sorry, the evidence of Scripture, but then secondly, the evidence of testimonial, but then thirdly, the, some practical evidence of the incarnation of Christ. Historical, practical evidence. Number one, I want us to think on here, is the evidence from history itself. You know, though the following evidences are not mentioned about the incarnation, they don't specifically mention the incarnation, they support the, er- the early life, earthly life of Christ and his, his ministry here on the earth. As we think about this, the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled by Christ. Lots of prophecies were fulfilled. But here's some. He was born of a woman, all right, that was prophesied in the Old Testament, and that took place in, in, in the early Gospels there. We saw that. He was born of a virgin, prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. He was born of the seed of Abraham, 
prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. He was born in Bethlehem, prophesied in in, um, Micah, fulfilled in the New Testament. He uh, he died a humiliating death, prophesied in the book of Isaiah and Psalm 22 and other places, and it was fulfilled in the New Testament. He rose from the dead, prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the new, and many others. So these are just some historical things that took place. But you know also, the historical locations of the gospel narratives are identifiable today. For example, if this was all just a myth, and if it didn't happen, and none of the story of Jesus was true, then you'd read those things and say, you know, I wonder where that town is. You know, but you look at the, the, the locations. Bethlehem, we know where Bethlehem was. We know where Nazareth was. We know where Jerusalem was. We know where Galilee was. We know where all these places are. They're still there today. And these are evidences of, again, the things that Jesus spoke of and his life was about. They were about him. And the evidence is still there today. Historical people during Jesus' lifetime are mentioned in secular history. You know, you, you, you can look at secular history and you find things about King Herod. You find about Herod's death. You read about Pilate and read about other people in the Bible. There were Bible characters, but they're historical fact. And so when people say, and you know, there's still some nuts out there that are trying to say, well, there really never was a man named Jesus. It's all just made up stories. There's so much evidence that Jesus lived. You know, they they have to really, really be blinded to say that kind of a thing. There's just piles of evidence. And there's even a historian from the uh, first century, uh, well, I guess it'd be the second century, uh, in AD. 116, all right, so not quite 100 years after Christ, a man named uh, Tacitus mentions the Emperor Nero falsely blaming the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. In other words, there was lots of them. They were hated for that. And Christus, speaking of Christ, the founder of that uh, name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procreator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. Now this was written in the first, or in 116 AD. Very close to that time. And the apostle John had just died just shortly before this was written. And so this guy is telling us about this stuff. Secular scholars uh, of antiquity agree that Jesus existed. That's even on Wikipedia. It says, you know, there's loads of secular historians that say, of course Jesus existed. And so we know he was existed as a man. And if you want to, you can download my notes. There's a, a, a website, and I don't know, I'm not recommending the whole website because obviously I didn't scan the whole thing, but it's got a great list of quotations from early, early historians. And it's in the notes. You can download it off the web. Uh, it's It's got... I don't know how many, just lots and lots of quotations from historians that uh, were in the first, second, third centuries that were telling about Jesus Christ and all the things that took place. So very much evidence to that. So history itself, from a secular point of view, also verifies that Jesus Christ lived, and they don't verify that he was God in the flesh, but they do verify that he was a real person. But then there's evidence also from within. There's evidence from within. If Christ were just a man and not God, the God-man, he would have no 
more power to change lives than any other dead religious person. And yet Jesus Christ has changed the lives of millions of people since the first century. And we read there in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And praise God for the change He can make in our lives. And that is something we need to hold on to and recognize. That is also proof. We sing a song we're going to sing in just a few moments in closing that speaks of this. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. He lives. He lives. I know He lives because He lives in me. And so that is evidence of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you have the witness of the Holy Spirit living within you. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 says, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. He said, the Spirit of God lives in us, testifying that God is real and that He is genuine in our hearts and we're one of His children. And then also in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, a verse we looked at a few weeks back on a Sunday morning. He says, if we endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is He whom the Father chasteneth not? I love that passage because every time the devil tries to get me to doubt my salvation, I can go back and say, hang on now, how many times has God chastened me for doing wrong? Loads of times. I do something wrong and immediately the Spirit of God says, that's not right. You can't do that. That's not right. You can't get away with that. And he's convicting me. And that is a blessing because that's God's assurance saying, you're mine. I'm not going to let you get away with that. You can't do that. And that is a testimony again within us that Jesus Christ is real. And that Jesus Christ came to this earth and fulfilled all that he said he did. And so, tonight, from a historical point of view, we have looked at the incarnation. And we can have confidence that Jesus Christ, the God-man, lived on this earth just like the Bible stated he did. And I trust that the historical evidence that we've looked at here tonight and examined will strengthen your faith and help you to defend the incarnation as you uh, talk with others about this. So, Think on these things we've looked at. The Bible is true from cover to cover. The scriptures tell us in Psalm 119.160, Thy word is true from the beginning in every one of thy precepts. And I can't remember the rest of the verse. But thy word is true from the beginning. And all of it is true. And so we can depend upon the word of God. It is true. We can believe it because God has given us an accurate book. And because the Bible defends it, it will help us to be able to understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ.